Rhonda had come downstairs from her hallway on the second floor to the lower level to fight. You can see all of our classmates gathering into the hallway, packed to the brim. Rhonda came expecting to see one opponent, but one turned into two, and two turned into three. And you can see us there crowding into the hallway to see what's about to happen. And as we crowd in, Rhonda begins to back up. As she's backing up, she's turning to her left and she says, somebody, go and get Nene. She turns to her right and she says, somebody, go and get Nene. Because she knows that whenever Nene comes down those stairs, whenever Nene turns that corner, whenever Nene sets foot onto that hallway, it's gonna be some furniture moving. <laughs> Bodies will fly and somebody getting hurt. I'd like to say good morning to everybody. My name is B. Chris Simpson and I have been here all weekend and I feel great. Um, when I came in on Friday, it was an unusual snow, I hear. As I've already covered this weekend, I have never been to Minnesota before. But I do quite a bit of traveling, and it just happens that whenever I travel to a place, normally the first day I get there, it's the worst weather they've had in a long time. <laughs> so then I'm sorry about all the snow. <laughs> I take primary responsibility for that. Um, so I've been living here as a uh, Minnesotan for three days now, and it, and, and it just feels great. I'm so thankful to this church. The discipleship conference has just been amazing. We had 12 churches here, and um, I'm just so impressed and so thankful to have been a part of this. I'm thankful to have met your ministers. Jordan brought me out, Patrick and Logan. I'm thankful that you guys have uh, brought me here. I've met the elders. This is just a beautiful church, like for real. Whenever I go places, as I travel a lot, people say, well, have you been to this place? And I said, Yes. And they said, well, have you been to this restaurant or have you seen this thing? And I always say no, because whenever I travel to places, to Florida or to upstate New York or to Alabama or to Atlanta, wherever I'm going to Texas, it all sort of seems the same because I'm just working. You know, I just see the insides of churches. So it's not like I'm going up to uh, some place to speak and then I'm going to have a whole day left over to go and see sites, you know, not normally. But what's so interesting is though I never really see the site of that specific place, I count myself so privileged because I see the people of that specific place. So what I remember most about going to different places is not necessarily the site I was to see or the most popular restaurant in town or the attraction. What I remember most about where I go are the types of Christians, the people that I meet. And so I have never been to Minnesota before, but I'm walking away with a very, very clear picture of the Christians here, and that is way better than the Mall of America. <laughs> now don't get me wrong, the next time I come, I'm going to the Mall of America. <laughs> but 
I've just been so blessed to be here with you guys. And to see this young man come up here and tear it up with those, with, with, with those uh, books of the Bible, I just love that so much. I just love that. You know, I grew up uh, in what social workers call uh, the inner city. We call it uh, the hood. And I believe Elvis Presley uh, maybe called it the ghetto. <laughs> there was something uh, magical about it, though, which, which is really hard to uh, explain. There was this fast energy about it. Whenever you're young and you get out of school, there's this energy. Whenever you cross the street with all of your friends and the hot Texas sun is beating down on you and you just laugh and laugh and laugh. You cross from the street with all your friends to go to the candy house, which is just right across the street. And the candy in the hood is still like a penny. And so then if you got a nickel, you get five pieces. If you got a dollar, you can get a hundred pieces. If you got five dollars, you get 500 pieces. And you're just there with your friends and you're laughing. You laugh so hard. Uh, you choke on your Tootsie Roll. I remember how growing up in the ghetto was like uh, a family. It, there was this energy in the streets. It was uh, uh, palpable on Fridays whenever everybody got paid and everybody uh, goes home. You take off your clothes and then you go back out and you get fried chicken or you stand in lines to get fried fish, you bring it on home, you invite your family out, your friends out, you just eat and you eat and you eat. And then my family, of course, we would turn on old Michael Jackson videos and dance and sing into the night. It was something about that, that time. It's an energy. It's a sort of a palpable thing that you can actually taste. It's this buzz. And so, that's sort of my background. That's sort of how I've always grown up right there. And uh, it's really difficult to shake sometimes. I try to shake it, but really, I'm still who I am. Now, granted, I've always considered myself to be <clears throat> sophisticated, uh, but it's still in me. It's just sort of who I am. And so, uh, when my son challenges me, sometimes that can be a problem. Now, my daughter, she's sweet. She really is. And I don't know if all girls are this sweet, but she's a sweet little beautiful thing. My son is not. <laughs> and so my son, you see how when they get a certain age, they start to feel themselves. They get a certain age, they start acting up and acting out, okay? They start thinking that they're strong, they start trying to challenge you. But I try to tell my son, <laughs> you don't know me like that, bro. <laughs> oh, see, because I'm from the hood. And it's real hard on me, because you, you really can't take the boy out the hood, but it's hard to take the hood out the boy, you know what I'm saying? And so when he's getting disrespectful, I try to tell him, son, you need to really question your actions right now. Because where I come from, people end up dead. And so you really don't want to approach me like that. You need to check yourself, bro, because I'm not the one. 
really and truly. I start going off. My wife, of course, she doesn't understand this. She is from a rural place, okay? So she's across the, you know, the room, across the hall, and she's just listening to this whole thing play out, and she's just like, oh, Lord. You know, she's from this uh, small town in Arkansas, you know, and the first time I ever saw a stick, I was 18 years old, right? And so she doesn't understand where I'm coming from. You know, I went to her hometown, and I'm there in this rural place, and I'm looking, and I'm like, look at all these sticks, right? You know, I pick up a stick, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, is, is this what you all use to bop somebody over the head when they get in disrespectful? And she's like, no, I mean... We, like, put marshmallows on the edge of those and, like, <laughs> roast them over an open fire. And I'm like, whatever. <laughs> it's, it's hard on me. Whenever my son gets crazy, I get crazy, too. I try to be mature, but it's difficult because I'm from the ghetto. And so it's not always easy for me to keep a cool and calm head. I start diverting back to where I'm from whenever you feel this threat like somebody trying to get at you, and so you're really trying to stay calm, but you can't. I get crazy sometimes. The worse he gets, he starts to smell himself, and I get crazy. I start quoting weird things. I start hollering about where I'm from, start calling out random streets. Hey, bro, I'm from Oak Cliff. We don't do that. Where I come from, I'm not the one, bro. You don't know me like that, where you clap for every syllable like we do in the ghetto, and it's just like I'm trying to calm down, but it's really hard for me, too. I'm like misusing scriptures. I'm like, ask, and you shall receive. You see, it's just... Like, I'm backtracking. I can't make sense of things. I'm calling random neighborhoods and random street names and saying, what happens in my hood, bro? You need to sit down. You need to back up. You need to second guess yourself. I'm not the one. You better regulate yourself so I don't have to. I'm going on and on. And then my poor wife, she's here looking. And so she has to come to me. And she just says, babe, you're doing that, uh, that ghetto thing again. <laughs> I know, but he don't know me like that. You need to go and get him. I understand he doesn't know you like that. I get it. He don't want none. I understand. <laughs> I get it. But Chris, you have to remember he's just two. Well, you better get him, Haley, because <laughs> we're going to have a whole lot of extra money without one more mouth to feed. You see, the, 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 the ghetto could be dangerous. So when you feel that you're under some type of threat, it can make you act in certain ways. The best way to get through the ghetto is to survive it. There are downfalls to the ghetto as well. The easiest way to survive it is to partner with someone who's stronger than you. Now, sometimes growing up in the ghetto in this very threatening environment where sometimes you can snap back into it, uh, the hardship is that you have to create alliances. Now, in the event that you had a real big family, that was easier to do because you had your brothers, you had your sisters, but what if your brothers or your sisters were older than you or you did not have a very big family? Then you had to create alliances with people in your school, with friendships, just in case Something happened, just in case there was a threat, just in case someone is going to fight and they're trying to jump you, okay? If something like that happens, then you have to have an alliance with someone who's stronger than you. 
And so then it makes sense that whenever Rhonda is downstairs, though her classroom and her pod is upstairs, she's reacting like this. Rhonda was a fighter. She fought. And where I come from, they used to fight in the school, and then they would finish it at the train station. And so then people would go to the train station and finish fighting. Now, of course, my parents were very strict, so we couldn't go nowhere. But I would send somebody, and they would come and bring me a report of what happened at the train station the day before. And so whenever they are there fighting and they're coming back, you always hear Rhonda's name because she's a fighter. She was more smaller in stature, but really the one who was the actual fighter was her best friend, Anastasia, who we call Nene. Nene must have been a heavyweight boxing champion in her previous life. She was really built like a grown woman, though we were in the eighth grade. It really did seem like she was a grown-up. And some of these folks, these, these, these uh, young folks now, are much bigger than they really should be. It, it, it's the high fructose corn syrup. It's in everything. And she was just so tall and so strong and just so woman-like. She was a fighter. She could fight two people at once. And so whenever Rhonda's down here on the hallway, she's about to settle some score that we know nothing about, but she's about to fight this one girl, but then the one girl turns into two, and then two into three because she's gotten her friends. And so then the best thing that she can do is to retreat. You can see us here on this hallway as we all crowd in to see what's about to happen. Whenever Rhonda comes downstairs from her hallway upstairs to the lower hallway where we are to fight one opponent, but the one opponent turns into two, and then two into three. And you can see us here as we crowd into the hallway to see what's about to happen. But there she is, backing up. And she turns to her left and she says, somebody go and get Nene. She turns to her right, she says, somebody go and get Nene. Because she knows that whenever Nene comes down those stairs. She knows that whenever Nene turns that corner, she knows that whenever Nene sets foot onto that hallway, it's going to be some furniture moving. <coughs> Bodies will fly. And somebody getting hurt. When we look at the cross of Jesus and what it represents, what it has done for mankind, you can approach it in a number of different ways. And throughout the last 2,000 years or so, many people have, some more right than others. At any rate, when we talk about the cross, we're really talking about the theology of substitutionary atonement, the fact that we were supposed to die for our own sins, but Jesus, loving us, died in our place so we would not have to. There are many types of theories, sub-theories, in the greater theory that is substitutionary atonement. One such is called the satisfaction theory, which really focuses more on the debt that we had to pay. And so then Jesus acts as this substitute 
for us, and this substitute satisfies the required payment that we could not pay by giving our own life. And so that is really something that we really focus on in a country like ours. Because in a country like ours that's very individual, we are a guilt-innocent society, whereas other countries are more honor-shame. If you were to go to Asia or if you were to go to Africa, they are honor-shame societies. So then in an honor-shame society, every single thing is based upon you either honoring your community and or not shaming your community. It's all about the community. It's a communal society. So everything is sort of outward because you don't want to shame your community, but you want to honor your community. Of course, in an individual society like the one in which we live, it's not honor shame, it's more guilt innocence. And we see this in our court and our justice system. It being more guilt innocence, that's not as outward as honor shame. It's more inward. It's more interior. You kind of decide for yourself, do I feel guilty? Am I innocent? And so it makes sense that in the West, not just this West, but in Western church, that this type of thinking, satisfaction theory, would really appeal to us because satisfaction theory kind of focuses on you had a debt you needed to pay with your life, but you didn't do it because Christ loved you. And so because Christ loved you, he had to die and it's all your fault. And so then that type of idea resonates with people like us because what it's supposed to do essentially is make us feel guilty. Christ would not have died if it wasn't for us. And so then from that guilt, there's supposed to be this repentance that leads to us giving our life to Christ. And that's exactly the way it's supposed to work. And there's nothing wrong with that at all because the Bible said this. Jesus said, you killed him. Peter rather said, you killed him in reference to Jesus. You did it. But it's important to note that such theories in reference to how we see and interpret the cross and what it is, such theories are not the only ones. For many, many years, that was not the only way to see the cross as just a satisfaction of a debt to be paid. There's another theory that really predominated the Christian thought for a century, for centuries before this one which is called Christus Victor, a Latin term meaning Christ is victorious. What it literally focuses on is the cross being this symbol and what Jesus did on the cross being this proof that Jesus won, that Jesus is actually born in the middle of time in what is actually a bloodbath a war between good and evil. That's why some of the very first thing that Jesus does is he starts to cast out demons because Jesus is here in the middle of a war, a war between good and evil, a war between God and Satan, a war between all of those who need to be released and all of those who need to be underneath the feet of God, those who are trying to get ahead versus those who are trying to pull the whole human race behind. And so in this war, Jesus is coming into the world, and as he comes in, he's coming face-to-face with the demons, face-to-face with the evil. How many times in the Old Testament was a demon cast out? Zero. 
the first time we see an actual demon, a demonic spirit cast out is when Jesus comes to earth because that's why he came. He came to crush the devil and to give life to every single person abundantly if they so choose to receive it. And so the idea of Christus Victor treats the cross as the ultimate symbol that Jesus did not lose, but that he won, that Christ is victorious. Christ is victorious. You can see as we crowd that hallway, Rhonda, whose class is really upstairs, she's now downstairs because she's come to fight. And you can see that we're crowding to see what's about to happen. She came to fight just one opponent, but the one turned into two, and then two into three. And then you see her slowly backing up. She's turning to her left, and she says, somebody go and get Nene. She turns to her right. She says, somebody go, get Nene. Because she knows that whenever Nene comes down those stairs, Whenever Nene turns the corner, whenever Nene sets foot onto that hallway, it's going to be some furniture moving. Bodies will fly, and somebody is getting hurt. So then using this concept of Christus Victor to see the cross this morning, let's turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. As a prelude to Romans, chapter 8, We'll talk a little bit about Romans chapter 7. When addressing Romans chapter 7, Paul is talking about this idea of sin and how wretched it is. He says it's the law itself that has aroused this sin within me. He says the law, which was supposed to make me do right, only made me want to do worse. He says because it's this sinful nature that's within me. He says the very things that I want to do that I don't do and the very things that I don't want to do, that is what I end up doing all the time. But then he turns the page. He talks about the Holy Spirit, which is what we've talked about all weekend here in this discipleship conference. And he says, but the Holy Spirit is making things different. He says the Holy Spirit. He says Jesus. He says the cross, that very thing that Jesus came and died on, he says that's the thing that is changing everything in our lives that's releasing us from the law, that's releasing us from sin, that's releasing us from death. Here in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, the Bible says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul said, the law has aroused this sin in me and I feel trapped by it. He says, my own sin has shackled me at the ankles and the wrists and I feel trapped by it. The idea of death haunts me every day and I feel trapped by it. He said, but don't you know that in reference to all these things, Jesus has come, and because of what's happened on the cross, we are not losing, but we have become more than conquerors. We live in a dangerous world. Somebody has got to go and get Nene. We have an alliance with Christ, someone stronger than those who oppose us in the world. Somebody go and get Nene. God in the flesh has come down to us in human form. Somebody go and get Nene. Because we in this very dangerous world, in this dangerous place, the ghetto, the hood that is the world that we're living in, doesn't matter that it looks pretty, doesn't matter that it gives us all this pleasure, we are in a place that is dangerous. And here in this dangerous place, we have partnered with someone who is stronger than we are, who is stronger and able to fight battles that we can't. So somebody go and get nay-nay. We have experienced many threats in our society. The sin that we personally keep falling into, the evil that is literally all over this world, social issues like poverty, human sex trafficking, pornography, classism, and racism, Things having to do not with us at all, like deathly hurricanes, divisions throughout our country, politically, financially. When a man shoots up a church in Nashville, he just walks into the church and opens fire. You can't even go to church and be safe. Somebody should go and get Nene. Because though all those things are happening, we are not losing. We are winners. We are powerful, we are protected because we are loved unconditionally. This is the reward of being a disciple. All weekend, we've been talking about how to be a disciple, addressing some of the things that we've done wrong. We've looked at Acts chapter 2 in order to achieve this. Today, though, we can celebrate the fact that when we are disciples, we're winning. I ask people who aren't disciples of Jesus, how does it feel all the time to be hashtag losing? Who wants to do that? You feel like you're winning, but what happens when you realize that I could not spend my money to get out of this cancer? What happens when you realize, wow, even though I'm pretty and I'm beautiful, my child can be born with a deathly illness too? What happens when you come up against life? What happens when you come up against suffering? When you come up against pain? When the devil runs you out of the city? When death knocks at your door, when the law arouses a sin inside of you that you cannot escape, what happens then? Aren't you sick of losing? When we become Christians, all those things still haunt us. Death, sin, the law, it creeps on us. But because of what Jesus did, because we are his disciples, we're hashtag winning. We become conquerors because Christ is victorious. And so then we 
too are victorious. We have defeated our enemies, evil, the devil, the elemental spirits, demons, and even death itself. Christ came down to earth. He started a ministry to topple earth, to topple the world, to replace all of the things that was wrong with it. He took the demons and he put them under his feet. He took evil and he put it under its feet. He even took death, took it in his pocket, put death on his back, carried it up on the cross. He died, death on the cross along with him. They took both he and death off of the cross, put he and death into the grave, but when the morning came three days later, it was only one of them that walked out. Amen. Jesus walked up out of the thing and death stayed there in the tomb where it still is today because we are victorious. Somebody ought to go and get Nene. Nene, short for the name Anastasia. Anastasia from the Greek term anastasis, which literally means the resurrection. It's this that makes us victorious. Somebody ought to go and get Jesus. Because whenever Jesus comes down those stairs, we know that whenever Jesus turns that corner, we know that whenever Jesus sets foot onto that hallway, it's going to be some furniture moving. Bodies will fly and somebody getting hurt. <laughs>